Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Break Podcast. This is episode 160. My name is Byron. I'm here with my good buddy, Gary. We're talking all things jiu-jitsu. Gary, how's it going, my friend? You know, it's going great, especially when we're talking all things jiu-jitsu. Um, we got a great show planned today, and, and I'm ready to uh, get, get rolling. Yep, we have an interview with Hope Uzgataki. We interviewed her husband a while back and uh, learned about how she's accomplished so much in jiu-jitsu. And, and uh, definitely, I sent her some messages kind of getting her to uh, do an interview. So really excited to bring Hope to the, uh, to the listening audience here. So that'll be coming up shortly. Yep, and then uh, you know one of our one of our guests we've had on a couple times, John Will. We have an article and a quote from him, so a little double dose of John Will, and uh, and then uh, Hope on this show. So we've got an incredible show planned for today. Absolutely, Gary. Every time that we are in need of an article, uh, I always should look at John Will's website because he has amazing things. And sometimes people send us articles, which is great. You know, if you have a quote you want us to talk about, send it to bjjbrick at gmail.com or an article. Maybe you have a, a blog about jujitsu or something that's, you know, kind of relative to jujitsu. Send it to us and we'll be happy to, to share it with everybody and talk about it. Or if you just have a website you like to, to read and I think we should uh, be informed of that, that'd be cool too. But uh, we didn't have any this week, so I ended up going to John, John Will's website. And uh, is full of gold, man. <laughs> so I was like, oh, here's a quote, and here's our article, and, and they're both they're both great quotes, and it's a great quote and a great great article, and uh, it's he writes kind of short articles and just gets to the point. And uh, looking forward to that. He's one of our more popular guests we've had on the show. We had him on episode 107 and 10. No, I'm sorry, 107 and 127. So uh, looking to get him back on before too long as well. Yeah, you know the crazy thing is. I never thought that the hardest part about doing this podcast would be to find a quote in an interview and, uh, or a quote and an article every week. So uh, I thought that would be an easy part. But, boy, you know, just searching for articles. And like you said, sometimes we forget about the gold mines, and uh, we have to remember that. Anytime uh, nobody sent us one in, we know where to go. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, speaking of uh, uh, knowing where to go, Definitely check out the show notes and uh, check out Byron's audiobook. It's called Your First Year in BJJ. It's only $11.99 for two and a half hours of content. And is Byron guiding you through your first year of jiu-jitsu? And that's where all the trials and tribulations, the pitfalls happen. Um, you know, our goal is to keep keep people rolling for a long time. We want everybody to train jujitsu. And the hardest part is that first year. There's a big dropout rate in that first year. And and we're hoping to, uh, to you know, help you know, and help change the dropout rate to a retention rate, I guess we'd call it there. And, um, you know, this book definitely helps out. It's got everything from how to pick your first school to what to expect at a practice to um, how to get ready for competition. So, like I said, it's only $11.99. Tons of content, two and a half hours. Got, got some great reviews. So definitely check it on out. And the money uh, from the audiobook goes to support this show. The best thing about the audiobook. Gary, is it's an audio book. You don't have to look at me. You just listen to like you're just doing right now. I think I'd rather look at you. Oh, Gary. That's ridiculous. You're easy on the eyes. Oh, man. Well, if that's the case, go to our YouTube channel where we have the BJJ Break Q&A where I'll answer questions 
and uh, try to break them down for you and, and help out. Uh, but it seems like every now and then we get questions and they kind of get repeated and I figured I'll answer them on video and that way people will be able to check them out there. So uh, that's kind of how that started and it's going pretty good. Gary, uh, you mentioned the show notes about checking out the audiobook. There's a link in your show notes from there. You can go to the website, bjbrick.com, or check your email box in the inbox or maybe the junk folder. I don't know where it ends up. Probably the junk folder. <laughs> but we send out an email every week with all the show notes, all the links to – it'll have links to Hope's website or you know where she's training at. It'll have you know basically everything that we talk about on the show, article, quote, all that sort of stuff, Patreon stuff. And uh, it'll be in your email box if you want to be on that. Uh, list, go to our website or go to our Facebook page, type in your name and email, and that's pretty simple. And we'll send you a confirmation email shortly. So uh, that is our email list. Gary, I just mentioned our Patreon thing. Uh, yeah. What What is that, you might ask? Well, What I'll, is Patreon, <laughs> Well, I'll answer that. Thanks for the question there, Gary. Uh, Patreon is a website that is dedicated towards helping content producers like podcasters or artists or people who make videos or vlogs or whatever. Musicians is another one. And we signed up and we have a Patreon account there where if you want to go and support us per episode, you could pledge a certain amount of money. And there's different rewards at different amounts of money. But we have a new uh, pledge uh, amount because we really, to be honest, Gary, we weren't getting a whole lot of action on our Patreon account. Uh, well, I most... never get a lot of action, Byron. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I can't testify to that, Gary, but uh, on our Patreon account, it was a little bit... I mean, we have our, our four original, uh, Alexander, Greggy, Sean, and Rob, our, our, our four uh, original Patreons, and we're looking to get some more, and I think maybe just the price is too high, so we've lowered it. Um, you can now start supporting the BJ Brick Podcast at 50 cents an episode. And after you support us for uh, 15 episodes... At fifty cents, we're going to go ahead and mail you out a beach brick key patch, and we are mailing those internationally. So uh, check that out. It's a way you could kind of give us a pat on the back, probably about two bucks a month. And how it works is you don't get billed fifty cents every time, you know, every week. Uh, your credit card or or whatever you uh, use, your PayPal, will get billed once a month per the total of the how many episodes we have. You can put a cap on that at four if you'd like. So that's basically uh, how Patreon works, and we're trying out our new 50 cent uh, per episode level to see if that kind of helps out a little bit. We're looking to see uh, more people supporting the show and helping us grow. Yep, so, hey, we appreciate all the support you guys can give us. Thank you very much. Um, Hey, I'd also like to talk about um, uh, if you can get us in a submission uh, for the Coach of the Year. Um, We're doing a a new thing this year for uh, we want our listeners to – nominate their coach um and basically doesn't have to be a a coach who won a world championship won the pan ams we just want uh you to nominate somebody who has really helped you through rough times who has taught you and who has been a role model to you you know which is which is a definition of a coach right there you know guide and and be a role model and um and what we're going to do at the end of the year, we're going to, you know, hopefully have a bunch of submissions. So far, we've only got a couple. Um, the more, the better. And what we're going to do is have a little panel. And me and Byron will probably be two of them, but we'll get a couple other guys. And uh, and we will uh, pick uh, for the coach of the year. And, um, the you know, hopefully we can even get the coach of the year on the show. You know, we can't guarantee that. Some people don't want to be on the show. But, you know, it's just a, it's a good way to uh, – 
show some respect and and you know give back to somebody who has given so much to you you know has helped you out and and got you down the jujitsu trail and um, so and also too we'll put a you know, put it in the uh, show. We'll put a link to the school if you guys do have a website or whatever. So it'll get a little publicity to school too, which uh, can never hurt. And on top of that, that person will be the first ever BJJ Brick Coach of the Year. I don't know how prestigious of a title it is, but we like to think it's pretty cool. Well, statistically, there will be only one person in the entire world that has that title uh, when that happens. Yeah, yep, and that's, but, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. But uh, does uh, who knows? I think it's just a fun way to honor somebody, and 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 you could do that to your coach. Just getting on the keyboard, send us an email, type up a well written little essay about why your coach is so great. Yep, I tried to nominate Byron, and every time I sent the email to bjjbrick at gmail dot com, it kept getting returned. I'm not sure why, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to nominate him again. Well, I appreciate that, Gary. Uh, we did mention before that the coaches here, where we're from in Wichita, Kansas, will probably not be allowed to enter just because we have quite a few listeners here locally, and and uh, it'd be hard to vote on that. So we'll just keep us out of that. Well, that's why I changed the address oh. to uh, Kentucky. There you go. Gary, you're always thinking ahead. You're a smooth criminal. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate your efforts on that, Gary. It means a lot to me, buddy. Just like hey, I would to anybody else's coach. Yeah, see, that's how much it means. But uh, Byron, I think we should get on to uh, art or a quote of the week from Mr. John Will. Trying to model expert behavior without walking in the expert's footsteps almost certainly guarantees a poor result. Have you ever tried that, Byron? I think we all have, Gary. I think that's a common we definitely have. mistake. You you know, you just you type in on YouTube and you see all these two amazing athletes, and it could be in anything. This isn't a need to be just jujitsu. And you see what they're doing. It's like, wow, that is great. I could just do that, and I'll be I'll be good to go. So I I, I I'm going to study that particular aspect in in depth and ignore what got them to be that way and just try to do that right now. It's trying to learn how to maybe uh, seeing like somebody run an amazing marathon, you know, at, at, the, at the Olympics or something like that. Like that's what I want to do. And you go out and try to run a marathon. That's not going to work. especially it if, for you, Byron. Especially, you <laughs> well, especially if you're still at the part where you're trying to learn how to crawl. Like you yeah. have to, you learn to crawl first, you gotta, and you learn yeah. to stand, and you learn to walk a little bit, and you fall. And you could run, you could run a little while, and you could run a mile. And you have to build up. And, and what you don't see when you look at somebody who's doing amazing uh, you know, feats athletically or musically or whatever, is there's a lot of history in that person that is just kind of hidden and you have to look at where they came from, look at what they did when they were in your shoes or in your key and, and do that and don't just do what they're doing now. I remember when I was younger before jujitsu, I was really into uh, weightlifting and, you know, for some reason I wanted to be a bodybuilder. You know, I thought that was it at that time, which, you know, Hey, bodybuilding is awesome. But so I'd go uh, to the store and I'd buy a muscle and fitness magazine and I would follow the exact workout for Mr. Olympia or, or whoever. And, you know, I just couldn't understand why, you know, a month later I didn't have great results. You know, here I am, a little skinny kid, um, you know, who hasn't been working out very long, but thought I could do, you know, the workload that these guys are doing, do everything, you know, 
step by step that they do. They'd post their whole workout and I would follow it, but nothing would work. Like Byron said, it's baby steps. You know, I have to have to, you know, get everything right. The eating, the, the resting, the, the working out. Uh, but, uh, you know, I only did one thing and I, I way overloaded on it and and got no results whatsoever. Gary, maybe for your 140 pound frame. Uh, doing the same workout as somebody who weighs, I don't know, 280 pounds and is pure muscle is a bad idea. Maybe if you could have gone back and see what that person was doing when they were your size, that would have been a better game plan to 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 get their results versus just going there and do that. So true, Byron. So true. I wish I would have. I wish I would have known that without wasting all that time. But like you said, even jujitsu related, Absolutely. you know, we see it happen all the time. Um, you know, it seems like the the person who just starts knows all about the sport and has watched Gordon Ryan and and everybody and trying to do those moves. And uh, you know, what we really need to work on is uh, you know baby steps. Let's uh, like we have to uh, crawl before we can walk, before we can run, uh, before we can jump. Yeah, a lot of times coaches are telling you, "Hey, work on this technique for a reason." That is the learning how to crawl. That is learning how to walk. And you're trying to to just get out there and run full steam ahead, and that takes a lot of time on the mat before you're ready to 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 run on the mat. I guess Gary, as bad yeah. as that analogy is. Well, yeah, when I'm going against Byron, I'm always running on the mat because I'm running away from him because I don't want to get submitted. That is, has not happened. Uh, Gary, uh, from John Will's quote to John Will's article, and actually Man, that what quote, a segue. yeah, that, but that quote has a little article written about it as well. And we'll put a link to that, uh, that if you click on the quote in your show notes, which are in your email box, cause we already talked about that Gary, but the article yes. <laughs> is called leverage. That's it. That's the title leverage. And, uh, it, it is an interesting, uh, kind of a story of how his concept of leverage has changed over time. Gary, what did you pick up on this article? Well, you know, before we go about the article, you know, we just talked about, you know, experts and following in their footsteps. And, you know, John Will's an expert. He's, uh, uh, you know, the, a pioneer, one of the best ever, um, you know, been around a long time, knows, knows a ton more than I do. And I'm trying to follow in his footsteps. And, you know, I just realized I follow a lot more in his footsteps when I see John Will blog, fifth degree BJJ blog, oh, nowhere close, MMA coach, author. But here we go. I can follow him on this one. <laughs> licorice lover. I never realized John Will liked licorice. I like licorice, so I am following his footsteps one way, I guess. There you go, Gary. Uh, what kind of licorice? You know, I'm the uh, the red licorice, whatever it is, strawberry, I guess it okay. is. Or, so not the yeah, true, cherry, not maybe. the true licorice flavored black licorice that. Uh, no, no, not me, not me. Okay. Yeah, but if that's what John Will uses, you know, <laughs> or the kind he likes, I will follow in the footsteps. Well, maybe, maybe when he was your similar skill level in jiu-jitsu, he likes red, and you're doing it yeah. just right right now, Gary. <laughs> hey, thanks for looking out for me. <laughs> but. Uh, it's fun. The article uh, takes him through, like, when I first thought about leverage, it was just a word. It didn't really mean much to me. And then, you know, I thought about a guy standing and then a long stick and him trying to move the world with that stick because he has leverage. And, yeah, that that is kind of what definition of leverage is. But it doesn't really help you in jujitsu. Yeah, you know... I, I think back at the time when, you know, I was in geometry in school and and we talk about fulcrums and levers and stuff and 
to be honest, I could care less. It made really not much sense to me. I, I didn't really see myself moving boulders. I wish at that point I was into jiu-jitsu. It would make so much more sense. Like right now, I almost wish I could go back and take those classes just uh, because I think I would understand it a lot more. I think sometimes if teachers, you know, found out what you really uh, what your hobbies were and could relate it to. It. And I know the bad part about that is it wouldn't help everybody. I mean, because how many people really are into jujitsu and know it. But, you know, that's what I what I it just brought me back to the time where I knew nothing about levers and I would learn about it and it didn't make sense. And then I started jujitsu and I had to hear people talk about levers and fulcrum and it still didn't make sense. It's kind of like what John was saying until, you know, he, he came, you know, he'd been training a little bit longer and then uh, it all started to fall into place. If you think about a lever, it's just basically a large stick with a fulcrum and it, it helps you move things. And can we find these on the mat? Can we find ways to use a lever in jiu-jitsu? Not just leverage, uh, but an actual lever. Gary, what do you think about that? Do you know of any levers? Well, you know, here we talk about it in the article. You're humorous. and uh, Well, thank you, Gary. Is... I try to be funny, but I, not, uh, I, I fail <laughs> a lot of times. I think you set me up for that one now <laughs> that i uh, coming to. But, you know... I thought it was kind of neat where um, uh, he said it it dawned on him that the art of applying leverage was about achieving a lot with a little, about moving a larger object with a smaller object through some arcane use of thing called levers, you know, which is you're humorous. And you just realize as you start training just different ways you grab that lever, uh, different places you have your fulcrum, you know, which could be your – your groin as you're applying an arm bar, um, different angles um, you're going. And, you know, just like even an arm bar, you know, you've got your lever, you got your fulcrum, and you may change the angle to break the grip. And it's uh, it, it's kind of crazy how, you know, if you look at really every position, you can, you know, put this in there. It's, uh, you know, it's it's basic stuff, but it it's hard to understand. It, it takes a while to really understand it. Yeah, he he basically is calling the bones in your body or your uh, opponent's body they're levers to be to be pulled and and worked on. They're solid, and you could manipulate their body with these. And uh, an easy example I think for me to explain is when I have uh, side control, I'm on top, and uh, somebody uh, the the person on the bottom is trying to escape, and they generally have two options: they could turn towards me or they could turn away from me and try to turtle. When they're turning away from me and, and they're going to try to turtle or, or to kind of uh, turn around on me, uh, I could grab their arm and their forearm and pull it towards me. And that will make it very difficult for them to, to turn away from me. It'll make it hard to switch over their hips. But if I grab their arm, like at, almost at the shoulder, but it connects to, to their to their body, I have almost no leverage. They, they could turn right through that. But if I go all the way up to their elbow secure that and, and pull that towards me they can't turn into that it is just too uh, much pressure on their shoulder and they they're not able to to turn the hips over and get up uh, to, to the turtle position so that's one uh, simple way of kind of explaining that not just that it that the humerus the the bone the long bone in your arm between your elbow and your shoulder is a lever but it's where you apply the leverage where you apply the force to the lever uh, at the end of it is, that is important. So, looking at the at the legs, 
those are long levers, and if you could push on them and manipulate, uh, you know, where you're going to push at them, uh, that's a big deal. You know, it's, pushing in the middle of the leg is not as effective as pushing up towards the knee. You got a lot more leverage yeah. up there. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember back in the days when, you know, I first learned to do an arm bar. You know, I'd have an arm bar on, and and the guy would clasp his hands together, and and I would, you know, be pulling in the middle of his elbow. You know, and I'd just be pulling and pulling with all my might. And, uh, you know, I couldn't break the grip. Uh, sooner or later, the guy's uh, elbow, inside elbow region would get sore and probably bruised. And he'd finally let go because of all the pressure being put there. And I might finish an arm bar. But, you know, and it's funny, you know, then one day somebody's like telling me and he's like, hey, you know, if you just start pulling, you know, up by the by the wrist, it's a lot easier to break that. You, you can have a lot more force and just stuff like that. I never really understood. I just would grab something and push and pull with all my might and try to break it. And, uh, you know, you become uh, a lot more efficient and effective when you do figure out uh, levers and fulcrums and angles. Uh, definitely helps you out. Yeah, that's a big deal. And he, he, in the article, he continues on and talking about uh, off the mat, you know, using leverage off the mat in relationships, finances, fishing, wherever. There's ways to uh, get a big result with minimal effort. That's what that's what a lever is going to get that's you. That's the key. Yep. Garrett, can you just on the spot here think of a uh, of a spot where you've been able to use leverage uh, off the mat? Yeah, you know, at work. Let's say. Uh you know, I need to get more done. You know, I've got a, a ton of stuff on my plate and I need to get it done. And, uh, you know, it's, let's say, 12 hours worth of work. And and before, I used to just always say I'd outwork everybody. You know, I can be the last one to stay here. I'll be here at 8 o'clock at night. I'll prove you guys that, uh, you know, I'm the hardest worker in here. And as I've got older in my career, I realized putting in amount of hours doesn't mean I'm the hardest worker. It probably means I'm not the smartest worker. You know, as as I've, you know, got older, I've learned to, uh, you know, use uh, technology better, um, which is going to uh, give me maximum results and, uh, you know, maximum efficiency and, you know, and just stuff to make my life easier. And, you know, even as much as delegating stuff instead of doing it all yourself. And, uh, that has definitely helped me off the mat in my job. There you go. Lots of different leverage, and if you could find it in your life, pull that lever and yeah. uh, and get get things done a little easier. And I think technology you know, is a good one to look at, Gary. That's that's yeah. an amazing thing that was, has changed a lot. And you know the good thing about that: less time at work means more time training jujitsu, and that's what we're here for. Yep. There we go. Get more time on the mat, Gary. Yep. Speaking of more time on the mat, I think it's time for our interview. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. He taught Tyler Durden how to make soap just because they had extra supplies. He once got a mat burn. It ended up causing a three-alarm fire. When he pulls guard, the ref gives him two points. If you watch his competition footage, you will see Mr. Miyagi looking at him with approval. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, 
I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay listening, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Hope Uzgatiki to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you, Byron, for having me today. Thanks for being on here uh, with me today. I'm excited to, to get to know you uh, a little bit better and, uh, and to learn from you today. So um, I guess kind of if you can kick us off here, you've got a pretty impressive competition background, but can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm 27 years old, and me and my husband run uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy here in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I'm also one of the instructors, the Jiu-Jitsu instructors. I teach the boxing, the Muay Thai. Um, I help out with the kids' jiu-jitsu classes, and I have a women's conditioning and fitness class that I also teach. You're, you sound pretty busy, um, and you've also uh, competed uh, quite a bit, um, winning uh, two uh, IBJJF uh, World Championships, in, one in 2011, one in 2014. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, white belt and purple belt. All right. What, uh, do you have anything to talk about those experiences maybe as a purple belt uh, winning the, the world championship? I think the, um, the hardest one was purple belt. I can say the competition was really fierce. I had um, four matches, and they were all really, really tough opponents. So that was probably one of my toughest matches I've ever had together. What was it about uh, those matches that made them difficult? It was a hard training camp beforehand and then getting to, um, to California and cutting weight and then competing. They were just some really, really tough girls. So that was probably the, um, probably one of my personal best accomplishments that I can say, um, that I'm really proud of because I had such tough opponents and I came out on top after four really hard matches. Yeah, that that is awesome. And you're currently a brown belt, is that correct? Yes, I am. And are you is it, are you doing teaching mostly or coaching or or what do you are you looking to compete more or what is your focus in jiu-jitsu now? Right now I'm just teaching um after I received my brown belt last April, I um decided to focus more on our business. So I'm kind of behind the scenes, doing paperwork, taking care of everyone, and also teaching more, too. Um, so I haven't been able to compete at Brown Belt yet, but I'm hopefully going to start, you know, working towards competing again really soon. I'm, I want to compete at Brown Belt level and, um, you know, see see how it's different from all the other competitions that I did at the lower belts. Yeah, well, I'm sure as a, uh, a Purple Belt world champion, uh, getting mixed up there with the Brown Belts, you're going to do just fine, and plus the the added experience and uh, time you have on the mat, it will help out as well. Uh, what got you started in jiu-jitsu? I started jiu-jitsu because of MMA. In 2010 is when I started, January 2010. And I actually started because I wanted to get into cage fighting. And I found a local gym and I started training there. And I didn't even know what Brazilian jiu-jitsu was to begin with. <laughs> I just wanted to go and fight. So, I went to the gym, and that's where I met Jonathan. He was my first coach. And he was, what he told me was, to compete in MMA, you need to learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as your, you know, your um, your staple. And so I was like, well, I don't even know what that is. He goes, that's okay. You know, I'll, I'll teach you Jiu-Jitsu, and then you'll learn your boxing and your Muay Thai separately. Um, then we'll work on your wrestling. 
And so that's where I really first began learning jujitsu. And I absolutely fell in love with the sport. I think I liked it better than the Muay Thai, better than the boxing, um, especially better than the wrestling. It's a little bit easier on the knees. <laughs> so um, that's where I first started out. And I had one MMA fight um, two years after I started. And it wasn't what I really thought it was going to be. I didn't enjoy it at all. It was very, very self-centered sport. Whereas Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is more about, you know, your friends, the camaraderie, the family, really. And I missed that getting ready for, for my MMA fight. And so after the fight, I just decided that I wanted just to compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I started, started there and stuck with it. Well, that's uh, an interesting story and an interesting way to come uh, to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, what were you doing first? Uh, were, were you doing the striking arts before you started Jiu-Jitsu, or you just saw MMA and I, wanted to do it? I just saw MMA um, as watching, I think, Bellator, but I saw it on TV, and I was like, I want to start fighting, which most people do. And I, I didn't have any boxing background um, other than just watching it with my with my dad late at night. Um I didn't have any martial arts background or anything. And so I pretty much started it all together. And I will say that I did do more jujitsu than boxing or Muay Thai, um, just because the gym that I went to offered more jujitsu classes. And so I was training more in jujitsu. So that's probably why, you know, I enjoyed it more than, than the boxing. And of course, getting punched in the face isn't that much fun either. So (laughs) I enjoyed the grappling and submissions better. Yeah, I, I can I can imagine that uh, getting hit in the face is not a not a fun experience. And and I the oh, people who yeah. like the striking arts, that's good. You know, uh, th- that's amazing. Um, I'd rather be getting choked. <laughs> I don't know I why. I would too. I would have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> so hope uh, you're you're a pretty busy person. What do you do when you're not uh, doing jujitsu related things? When I'm not in the gym, I swim. I started swimming a lot. And I'm usually meal prepping. So you can either find me at the local pool or in my kitchen because I spend a lot of time between the grill and the, in the kitchen doing the meal preps for me and, and my husband. Okay, this is a, I'm interested in this uh, the, the meal prepping concept. Do you make a meals for like the whole week, or how does how do you? We try to. It usually doesn't last the whole week, but we'll go out and we'll buy about forty pounds of chicken. We'll buy steak, um, fish. And then we'll do, you know, all the veggies all, and cook everything. Pretty much we try to do it on Sundays um, and then see how many containers we can fill. Sometimes we make it through the week. Sometimes we don't. Between the two of us, we're eating about six meals a day wow. plus snacks. So it's a lot of food. And, well, I mean, they're small, they're small portions, yeah. you know. You portion them out. Um, so we don't – sometimes we have to end up cooking, you know, twice during the week. So you uh, you you make a whole bunch of food and you you refrigerate it in single serving uh, size containers to where you can just get that out and heat that up. Yes, yeah, especially with our busy schedule, you know we're only home for a couple hours in the afternoon before we have to go back to the gym and and teach or clean that sort of thing. So the less time cooking during the week we can spend is better. We can just come home, you know, grab our our little container, throw it in the microwave heat it up, eat it, and then just rest until we have to go back. I think that would help me with portion control because I, 
I do suffer from uh, always wanting more. <laughs> and if you have a, already <laughs> you know, figured out how much you're going to eat, then there you go. Oh, yes, definitely. Is We weigh everything out, measure it. Um, so you always have your just your perfect portion. So you're not overeating or undereating, especially if you're training a lot. You need to make sure you know, you know how much you're eating so you can perform better. Yeah, I think that's an area where sometimes I'll notice that you know, a more serious athlete will take, uh, spend a day and, and prepare their meals for, you know, try to do the whole week ahead of time. That way they have a mm-hmm. lot more control over their diet. They avoid the situations where they're, you know, headed home, it's late, they have no food in the fridge, and they have to go grab something on the way, you know, a fast food item. Uh, it really just, it, it's a smart way to prepare your week for healthy eating. It, it really is. I really enjoy it. It, it is very, very time-consuming. But I really enjoy, you know, cooking and experimenting with the different meals. And then especially if you're having to cut weight, you know, you know, this is the way I have to do it. And then just to to feel better when you're rolling, because when you're training really hard and you're rolling maybe twice, once or twice a day, if you're going and training once or twice a day, I mean, you will perform how you eat. So if you eat a bunch of junk or you grab junk food on the way home or fast food, and you're going to feel like crap the next day when you go try to roll. So it's it's a lot easier when you you know feed yourself with good food and um, good portions. Yeah, you you also mentioned that you like to swim. I think these are all uh, really good basic skills that everyone should know how to everyone should know how to cook a meal and, and and to to make something you know basic cooking everyone should know basic self-defense everyone should know if you end up in water how to swim and, and be safe but you're obviously swimming at a higher level than that um how how does swimming affect your uh your time on the mats it affects it in a in a in a better way um i would say that since i started swimming i have better lung capacity which that's what's the uh, swimming is supposed to do so I don't get fatigued as easier and also it's a, a stress relief for me um jujitsu sometimes especially since I'm training twice a day um it's sometimes it can be very frustrating especially if I'm trying you know learning new moves I'm fatigued you know the simple stuff that I should be getting isn't coming as easily so that's kind of like my time just to almost like meditation for me I go swim I can just let everything go um, just relax and really think about, you know, what I've been doing wrong, maybe how the session went. So for me, it's more, more, um, I guess mental than it is physical. It's kind of like my stress reliever, but it does help a lot. I've, I've noticed on the mats rolling, I don't fatigue as easier. So it has helped, um, in that aspect. Yeah. I always want to get like into swimming is, is, and especially for me, because if I do a lap or two, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm sure I'm not a very fast swimmer, but uh, for myself, I'm doing it. I'm doing okay with a lap or two in, but after that I start to fatigue a little bit and then breathing becomes more of a, of a chore. You can't just breathe, you know, when you want to, you have to time it. And then, uh, then I'll yes. struggle with that. My legs get tired and then I'll compensate with my arms. My arms get tired. And it's, it kind of reminds me of when I started jiu like it, it, that struggle with trying to be able to breathe and and try not to freak out and and being relaxed mm-hmm. and and just to just go and uh, and stay relaxed is a is a big deal. Exactly, and it's I do compare it a lot to jujitsu because like anything when you first start out, especially if you're new to the sport and you don't know what to expect, um, you are going to get fatigued really easily. You're going to be exerting a lot of adrenaline and a lot of strength when you really don't need to be. 
but the more you go and just like swimming and jujitsu, um, the more you go, the more you train, um, the better that you were going to become. And I always tell myself, especially when I go, when I go swimming, I'm not Michael Phelps. I'm not trying to be an Olympic <laughs> swimmer. <laughs> so, you know, I go there with the mentality, okay, this is to better myself. This is for me. So I don't, I try to put it in perspective exactly the way you should when you, when you train jujitsu, okay, what am I doing this for? You know, am I doing it to relax? Am I doing it to de-stress? Am I doing it to learn something? So go in with realistic expectations for yourself. Um, so you're not, you know, you don't feel, you don't turn something that should be enjoyable and a good learning experience into something that's, um, you know, difficult or what's the word I'm looking for? I'm sorry. I just some, lost the word. Maybe something that, uh, maybe something that you can't really achieve. Exactly. Yeah. It's unachievable. Um, I, I like this, this idea. I, I'm not Michael Phelps and, and, you know, I'll say this for myself and I never could be like Michael Phelps because, uh, <laughs> you know, his feet are giant. They're like flippers and, and, you know, he's just built to be a great swimmer. And then he also, you know, works very hard at it as well, but he's got both of those things working for him. And, and then I think a lot of times in jiu-jitsu that people do the same thing. We watch these, these celebrities in the jiu-jitsu world and, if you can't manage your expectations when you get on the mat, you're going to be disappointed because I'm not Marcelo Garcia. I'm not anywhere, you know, <laughs> near Andre Galvao or, you know, but I can watch them and, oh, this is cool. But if I can't dial back my own expectations, I keep disappointing myself. Would you kind of agree to that? A lot of students kind of get that idea that they're going to be, um, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from training hard and to being the best they can, but it, to have realistic expectations for your short-term goals is a, is a huge thing. Oh, of course. I completely agree with you on that. Um, I see it all the time. We have, you know, students who come in who, you know, they want to be the next world champion, which is a great aspiration. That's a great, um, a great forethought. You should have those goals. But let's be realistic. Are you going to come in there one day and become a world champion? <laughs> no, it's going to take some time. Like, it, realistically, you know, it depends on it depends on you, your athleticism, you know, your retention, how well you you learn, how well you can put everything together. So, I mean, and you have to be true to yourself. Is how I'd say it. You have to be realistic with yourself and say, okay, what are my goals? What do I want to accomplish? And you know, look at yourself and say, am I going to be able to put in this twice a day, every day to be a world champion? No. Okay. Well, let's start off with, you know, two or three times a week. And then, you know, if I get better, then I'll start training more. My condition is going to get better. My strength's going to get better. My, um, my techniques are going to get better. And then you can start working towards, you know, the bigger goals that you have. That's what we see. You know, we tell all the students, you know, start, Start with coming in and training. And then, you know, when you get to that point where you want to compete or you want to go, you know, the bigger tournament, then we'll go when we get there. You know, but don't try to put the the cart before the horse, as they say. Yeah. Well, I hope, and you're an interesting person to talk to this about because uh, as a white belt world champion, that that basic, I mean, people think that, you know, that's, that's, you know, white belt world champion, but really, you got really good at jiu-jitsu very quickly compared to everybody else in your in your category. You know, and and that's worth looking at to and investigating. Why why is it that you were able to uh, do so well early on? 
I attribute it to my training. I had a really good instructor. I had a great coach. And I was in the gym, you know, pretty much all day long. I was in college at UNCW. And I, I really, you know, scheduled my classes around my jujitsu training, which probably wasn't the best idea <laughs> but for me. I loved it so much. And that was, you know, one of my goals that I had when I first started that I wanted to compete. And then I had no idea about, you know, world championships, the IBJJF. And so it, you know, once I learned about them, I was already putting in the time. So I was like, you know, this is a goal for me. So it, it did take that, you know, twice a day, every day, and then go into competition, some of the smaller competitions, Nagas, the, um, the Nagas, the, you know, American or Grappler's Quest, that sort of thing, um, to get me up to that point where I was able to compete at that high level. Yeah, and I think that I'm kind of noticing a little bit of a pattern here. You mentioned that you know if if you want to be a world champion, that's a great goal, but uh, it's probably not your your first goal. Like your first one of your earlier goals was to uh, do well at Inaga, and then once you did that a couple of times, and then you you're stepping up and up and, and getting there. So you know just to to sit here and and hey, I want to be a world champion. Well, maybe I should start competing, <laughs> and I should start competing yeah. at a smaller level, and then do well there, and then bump up another time. And is that kind of, of what you did? That's exactly what I did. I competed. My first competition was two months after I started training. So I had, you know, I had a pass that I was really good at. I had a sweep I was really good at. And I had one submission that I was really good at. And I would get those in the gym training every single day. So I wasn't, you know, going and doing this one day and then going and doing that technique the next day. So I, you know, I focused on just getting my foundations in jujitsu um, and then focus on the tournament, which was, you know, it took me two months to get to that point where I felt confident to do a tournament. And then I did that tournament and then I was like, okay, well, what's next? The next tournament. So I, you know, took some time off, still training, but, you know, letting your body recover and then, you know, going towards the next goal. Hope I, I am uh, interested in, different recommended techniques for white belts and you had a a pass you were good at a sweep you were good at and a submission could you tell us what those were if you remember (laughs) i do remember i was uh my pass was the knee slide pass from standing open guard and my sweep was the flower sweep from closed guard and the submission was just a basic cross grip choke from closed guard or mount so that's pretty much all I knew. That's all I practiced. And that's what I won with in my tournament. All the girls, I think I had four girls, four or five girls in my, um, my division. Um, when I competed at my first Naga Charlotte competition and that's what I won with was all cross grip chokes, which are your pretty much your basic choke. I don't think you can get much, much, (laughs) much, much simpler than that. And do you still have a pretty good cross grip choke today? You know, I've I've moved on to other things. Okay. <laughs> I do. I mean, I I usually I'll throw it up there, but it's usually to try to get something else. So, w- would you prefer to be uh, back when you're white belt uh, passing, or would you like to be in your guard or playing the guard? I loved passing. I had um, a lot of knee injuries starting out, and a, a really freak accident where I cracked my left rib. And so I wasn't able to play on the bottom a lot. Um, so most of the time I was hopping on one leg, bouncing around, trying to pass the guard. <laughs> and um, so I practiced a lot of 
passing from the top just because I had the rib injury and then the knee injury. And um, so that's where I was most comfortable. It probably wasn't until I was late blue belt where I actually, you know, started playing more open guard. If I wasn't passing as a white belt, I would jump guard, which you can't do now, which I don't like because the, the, you have to sit guard now in the IBJJF. But um, I would usually pull guard into close guard and then do my cross grip choke or my flower sweep. Okay, and how um, how important is it, if someone's trying to figure out what moves to work on at at a white belt or blue belt level? How important is it that they go well together? It's very important. You want to have a, a a smooth transition between whatever it is that you're trying to do, but also the techniques that work best for you. So you don't want to be, you know, just trying something because your best friend's really good at it and they like it. You need to find something that, that works for you, that works for your body type, um, that's, that you enjoy, submission sweeps, passes that you like doing and that you're good at. Um, and then you can start branching off from there. So I didn't really have an open guard as a white belt. Most people play close guard as white belt. So from the close guard, there's, you know, a couple of different sweeps that you can do. I liked the flower sweep where, you know, you raise your hips up and you pendulum and come on top to mount. So for mount, you know, you have the Camoras, you have the Americanas. Um, there's a couple of arm bars that you can set up from mount, but I like the cross grip choke just because it kept me, you know, in the high mount position. It was hard for the person to roll me over. And if they did roll me back over into close guard, I still had the choke. So you do have to to find techniques that go well together that you can transition through in case it doesn't work. And by it doesn't work, I mean um, the person defends it. So the person bucks you out of mount and you end up in closed guard, you can still finish the cross grip choke. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And I'm also trying to uh, picture uh, you doing your, your, your pass and, and maybe you're able to kind of set up your first hand inside the gi uh, to get that choke started before you even pass to where you're, uh, after you pass, you're already locking that up and they're still worried about, oh, she's, all, she's basically passed and you're, uh, you know you're going to pass because you've done that pass a million times and your choke is right around the corner. Definitely. I always focus, you know, on getting my points first. So if I was playing on top and the person's at guard, I'd always do my knee slide pass and come into side control, get my points, go into mount, cross grip choke. So they were always, you know, lined up, bam, bam, bam. You know, if the person tried to turtle and I go north-south to the other side, go back into mount, cross grip choke. So we was always focused on, you know, those, those four simple techniques that I could put together from anywhere. Yeah. You had you had a way to get back to where you wanted it to be. Exactly. And that's that's important. So you didn't have to, you know, remember a, a hundred different ways to attack somebody in turtle position. Just put them into the position that you're familiar with and go back to your normal game plan. That's how I think it should be. And that's how you're going to, you know, achieve your goals and also, you know, be become better at jujitsu is putting things together that way. You mentioned a couple things about developing that game plan, you know, like body type and that sort of thing. You also mentioned that it's important that you enjoy the technique, and I think that's often overlooked. That if you, if I'm just learning, you know, this particular arm bar, and it's okay, it's all right. But if I'm like 
really interested in that arm bar and I'm, you know, trying to figure out the real details of it and not just having somebody show me, but I'm actually really seeking that information. I'm really fascinated by it. I'm going to get a lot better at that. So it is important to enjoy the techniques that you're trying to incorporate into your game. I think you have that deeper, deeper level of learning. It definitely is because there are so many techniques out there and not everyone is going to like the same things. And that's what makes all of us different. That makes, you know, that's what makes all, you know, like the high level guys and girls, you know, that defines their games. This is what they like. Um, there, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of things that I do not like. Like there's this one spider guard pass. I cannot stand. Did I have to drill it about a thousand times? Yes, I drilled it. Do I know how to get out of it? If somebody puts me there? Yes, I do. But do, would I ever pull that in competition or if I'm training? Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just do not like that pass at all. I despise it and I hate drilling it, but you know, you have to find things that you enjoy and you always, you also have to learn the stuff that you do not like. Um, so you recognize it in tournaments and in drilling and training um, and be able to defend it if you need to. But you don't have to like everything. Um, but definitely finding um, techniques that you do enjoy doing that work well for you and, you know, exploiting that because you'll be able to be the best at those techniques and get them from anywhere no matter what you're trying to, to, no matter where you're trying to go when you're training, you're going to be able to see those techniques pop up because you've become so good at them. Absolutely. It's the difference between uh, somebody who could uh, find a guillotine, you know, in the one particular spot, or if you find that, you keep working and, and you develop that over the course of time, you'll see guillotines all over the place. And most techniques are that way. You could find entries into uh, most submissions and, and different techniques uh, from pretty far away and it takes that time and that development to actually get those to, to really reveal themselves. Hope It sounds like you train a lot. Uh, do you take a uh, focused effort to, uh, to get a, a day of rest or how do you manage uh, training too much? It's not easy and I'll say it's not, it's not the, the most fun <laughs> thing ever having to go in and do two a days almost every single day um i do that's why i do the meal prepping we had talked before um so i'm not having to cook a lot in between you know the the afternoon time um when i'm not in the gym we i'm usually at the house um just laying down resting and then i do take you know we take saturday afternoons off we take friday afternoons off um and then sometimes sunday afternoons um but most likely we're back in the gym, you know, getting an extra session in, either drilling or, or rolling. Um, so it isn't, I mean, it's it's worth it because you see the improvement, um, but it's not the easiest thing to do. And it's not feasible for everyone. Not everyone's going to be able to come in there and train, you know, twice a day because it is a commitment. It is, you know, very hard to do, especially with people's work schedules. Um, I'm very lucky that I own a gym and, and I can go there and train. You know, I have the opportunity to train twice a day, every day. But um, the resting is really important, and I, every chance I get, I'm sitting down. <laughs> I know I have to go right back in there and roll with, with all of our guys that are that are getting really good and technical, and you have to be on your A game or else they'll, they'll jump on you. They'll jump on top of you and pass your guard, and you'll be in a submission next thing you know. <laughs> yeah, Hope, 
you made kind of a transition from somebody who competed a lot to more of a coach or more of a gym ownership role. What have you learned in that process? I learned that I love competing. I really, right now, I, I really want to compete. I miss it. Um, I learned how to instruct better, which was great. Um, I learned how to, you know, catch mistakes that, you know, I see our students making, that I see um, the even the children, two adults, making that I made myself. So when I'm watching a certain technique, I already know what to look for because I've been through what they're going through now. If they're learning, you know, a new sweep or they're learning a new path, I can go and I'll start, you know, without even thinking about it. I'm already looking, okay, is their hand right? Is their, their foot in the right place? Because I start, I start seeing the mistakes that I made at their level. And so as a coach, I can, you know, see those before, before they, um, they even do them really. So I'm able to critique them better as a coach now, as opposed to, you know, when I was, when I was competing, I was always the one being critiqued. <laughs> kind of, you, you mentioned that about MMA, you like focusing less on yourself and, and more on, on the team or it's, I mean, it's not, um, quite so I have to get ready for my fight. It's more about, Hey, we're getting ready for our matches or our fights. Yes, it's and this might not be true for everyone. Um, I know we have a lot of um, guys and girls that I have transitioned from MMA into jiu-jitsu and then jiu-jitsu into MMA. So this is just from my personal experience. I had two months where I got ready for my first cage match. And during those two months, I was being drilled in the gym. I mean, I had spar- a boxing, sparring session every day. I had a full MMA sparring every day. Then I was training jujitsu and defensive boxing. And then on the weekends, I would do wrestling. So it was, it was really intense. It was a lot of training. Um, I had a lot of injuries and it was really difficult. I didn't enjoy, you know, jujitsu is hard and you have your injuries, but it wasn't the same. And when it came down, you know, to, to the weight cut and to the, the, um, the cage match itself, I just did not like the way it went. I was, you know, in this room separated from my opponent by this pretty much this carry cloth that was hanging in the middle of the room. (laughs) And I had all the other fighters around me, um, you know, warming up. It was, it was really hard to focus. I didn't have my whole team back there with me, you know, like you do when you travel to jujitsu matches where, you know, you, you weight cut together, you, you eat together, you train together, then you go and fight together. Even though, you know, it's, it's you against your opponent out on the mat, you still have the, that team and family behind you, you know, standing on the sidelines and you can hear them. And during the cage match, I just felt like it was very, for me, it was very self-centered and I didn't have that support like I did when I went and competed in jujitsu. And so that's what, what really turned me off from it. And that's why I decided that that was the first and the last one that I would do. You're glad you stuck with the jujitsu. <laughs> I definitely am. I really enjoy it. What are some common uh, hurdles that, that women have in, uh, in particular when starting jujitsu? I say the number one would be strength because um, being women this is not for all women, but this is true for me. Um, starting out in jujitsu, I didn't have any female training partners. 
Um, so I was training all with guys all the time, and I was pretty much just getting thrown around. <laughs> even if I did my knee slide pass, which I was really good at, I would just get thrown around, like not even technique. I would just get thrown. So I think developing that jujitsu strength that you get from just training, um, that was the hardest part of it because I had technique. My technique was perfect. I could sit there and do a thousand flower sweeps flawlessly and do my cross grip chokes. But when it came down to the rolling, it didn't matter that I was, you know, performing these techniques perfectly. I did not have the strength to complete them, especially rolling against guys. So that I, that's what I would say is, you know, the number one, you know, not problem, but, you know, difficulty with women training is that they just don't have the jujitsu strength yet when they first start. And it sounds like with without the female training partners there, and you started competing in two months, so was that really the first, some of your first experiences grappling with other women just in competition? It really was, and it was, I'll tell you that it was a lot different. Girls move completely, completely weird <laughs> than guys. Guys are more stiff. The girls are very limber. They're very flexible. And so it was different rolling with girls in competitions. They were always, I was always getting stuck in half guard. You know, I was a white belt and even into my blue belt. So it was, it was something that, you know, those techniques that you have to work on when you come back from competition that you learn, okay, I did this wrong, I did this wrong, or this happened. You have to kind of start putting yourself with people that will give you those reactions to girls that are, that you're competing against. So for me, it was, um, flexibility. So with the guys that I was going to get against were almost all the time bigger than I was. Um, so they weren't that flexible. So I had to find, um, some of the more flexible guys and train with them more just to get that reaction and the technique that I needed for when I competed. Yeah. That sounds like a, a way that you overcame that, uh, that deficit in your training parts. You found some that were flexible, maybe not as flexible, but you were able to kind of see what was happening differently with somebody who's flexible versus just plain strong. Exactly. And also, you know, putting yourselves in the, putting myself in the position um, where I was getting caught up a lot. So could I have passed the guard? Yes, but I left my leg, you know, I'd let my leg hang so they would grab it into half guard so I could practice passing from that position. So you would kind of turn the, the rolling session into a, a, a practice of something that's deliberate. I'm deliberately going to pass the half guard, and I'm going to put myself there, and my training partner may not even realize that, but I'm going to get more practice passing this half guard uh, with, a, with a live opponent instead of just um, just learning the techniques about it. Yes, and that's what I would advise, you know, even new students. And students have been training for a while. Put yourselves in the positions that you're having trouble with. You should never go into the gym wanting to win. That's You're never going to reach the goals that you have wanting to win. You should always be getting better. And also by you getting better, your training partners are going to get better. But you're going to have to put yourself into those difficult positions, the positions that you might hate getting put in. And just like I said before, building the strength to get out of those positions, um, building the strength to do those techniques or just being able to, you know, to get better at those techniques that, that you might be, you know, a little bit slack on. 
Yeah, I remember early on in my jujitsu time uh, having a teammate who uh, who n- never got his back taken. He was always good about stopping that, and then watching mm-hmm. him compete, and somebody took his back, and he was in a ton of trouble. He never really spent the time there <laughs> in practice. So when he got there in competition, it, it was he was in deep water. That is a lot of you know. There's, that's a um, that's a problem that a lot of you know people who train have is they they want to always be on top. They always want to you know go for the submission, and then sometimes you know it happens in competition where um, where you end up in those positions that you haven't trained. And then what are you going to do? You know, you most of the time you're going to end up tapping because you don't know how to get out of there. Yeah, it's it's better to spend that time uh, with your training partners and your friends at, at your local academy than it is to to travel somewhere and do a big tournament and try to figure out how to escape <laughs> at that time. Exactly, no ego in the gym. Don't be, you know, don't be afraid to put yourself in a bad position and don't be afraid to tap. And that's what we have trouble with a lot is, you know, oh, I'm a brown belt. I'm not going to let a purple, a blue, or a white belt tap me. Um, and you have to pick your training partners. I'm not saying that you should go with everybody and, and, and train the techniques that you're bad at because some people, you know, do not know how to roll yet. So their balance might be off. You have to pick who you're going to train these different techniques with. So a brand new person, you might not want to be, you know, you not, might not want to be practicing something that, you know, they wouldn't know is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they might react in in a way that's not helpful to them or they might uh, actually make uh, the, the submission tighter and, and possibly injure themselves mm-hmm. by turning the wrong way or something like that. Exactly. Injure themselves or injure you. So you have to pick, you know, who you're going to work your techniques with. Okay, I know this guy is really good at taking the back. I know this guy's really good at half guard. I know this guy's really good at close guard. So I'm going to let them put me there so I can work to get out. If I get out, that's great. I'll put myself right back there and I'll do it again. If I don't get out, okay, well, now I need to go back to the drawing board or ask my instructor, my coach, okay, I'm having this problem while I'm rolling in this position. You know, what am I doing wrong? And then your 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 coach, your tr- instructor, he can come and say, okay, well, you're putting your hand in the wrong place. You're putting your leg in the wrong place. You know, and then you can go back to training and do it all again. And that's how you're going to advance. That's how you're going to learn the the fastest and you're going to be able to kind of become a better grappler. Yeah, that is that all sounds like great advice to me. Hope, I'm really interested to ask you this next question because you had so much uh, success early on in jiu-jitsu, and you started competing at, would you say, two months? That's uh, yeah. pretty quick compared to most of us. So what advice would you have for somebody who's going to do their first tournament? Be on weight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't miss your weight. Um, no, I, in all seriously, I think, um, you know, just have fun. Have fun do it as a learning experience and, you know, use competition to be able to become better. So competitions for me, of course, I want to be on the podium. I want to be on that first place. I want to be able to get in the gold medal, but that's not what it's about. It's it's actually seeing what I'm doing. Is it working or is it not working? You know, how good am I in this position? How good am I in that position? Um, Cause not all the time when you're training, you can, you know, go a hundred percent. Because you don't want to hurt your training partners. You don't want to, you know, um, do anything to hurt anybody. So you really can't give it 100% when you're training. 
So competitions for me were seeing everything that I've been doing in the gym, all my time that I've been putting in. Um, so my advice was just, you know, go out there, have fun, and, you know, put everything that you've been learning to the test. And and when after the tournament's over, you can fix whatever you need fixing because you are going to see tournaments, you're going to see what needs work and what doesn't. Yeah, that that is great advice. And you joke a little bit about beyond weight, but that if somebody hasn't had to make weight for any competition before, and suddenly you know you're training for jujitsu, you're learning these techniques, and suddenly there's another element that you have to do this before you even compete. You have to make weight, mm-hmm. and that might be something that you might want to try uh, two weeks ahead of time or a week before, and see. Okay, I want to be do this weight at this time in the morning. Let's do that, and and kind of just see how your body works and see how you feel. Or maybe actually just lose weight beforehand. So uh, the beyond weight is is kind of funny. It sounds like there's a little bit of maybe a story there, but um, it, <laughs> I've got plenty of weight cutting stories. <laughs> I have some horrific stories because I never did. You know, the wrestlers have the background of okay, they know how to cut weight. Um, but me, I just played you know high school sports. Um, when I came to college, I dropped all the sports and just kind of hung out for a year until I started doing jujitsu. But I never had to, you know, worry about my weight. And so the first couple of tournaments, I just did, you know, whatever weight class I was in. And I went with some huge girls in the beginning. And I was like, I am never doing that again. So it was, you know, a struggle to drop weight and get down to the weight class for my size because I'm only 5'6". So I needed to be in a certain weight class where I was going against girls that were my same size. And that was a struggle in itself. So maybe for the first couple of tournaments, you know, if you're not, if you're, you know, just regular size, I would say don't even worry about the cutting weight. Just go there, you know, for the learning experience. And then if you're wanting to become more disciplined with it and you're wanting to compete more, I would definitely suggest, you know, getting into a weight class that's that's best for you. Yeah. What advice do you have somebody who does want to cut a little bit of weight and they're not really experienced with that? Meal prep and do it early. Do not wait <laughs> because I've like I've, one story is we were in New Jersey. It was in November and it was the Grappler's Quest. Um, I think it was like the World Cup Grappler's Quest or something like that. And so I needed to cut about three pounds. Well, she's saying three pounds. Okay, I can do that in like an hour or so. Well, it didn't take an effect that it's November. It's freezing cold outside. It started snowing. So we're trying to make a sauna in the hotel room in the bathroom so we have the hot water on we're like rolling in the bathroom literally like drilling in the bathroom to try to cut sweat and so after about two hours i was like i hadn't even dropped a pound i was like okay well i'll go sit in the car and try to you know with my sauna suit and everything and try to sweat it out sat in the car for another 30 45 minutes didn't drop anything so we ended up having to find a gym with that had an actual like sauna to go and sit in and that was the last time I was like, you know what? I'm going to be on weight for the next time. I'm not going to do this because just those three pounds was horrific. And I still won, which was awesome. But, you know, I I was like, that is the worst experience I ever had trying to cut weight when it's freezing cold. It's like, I will never do it again. Yeah, and it sounds like it's adding an element of stress already onto you when you're worried about competing and you're worried about performing. You also have to, now you're worried about, okay, let's try the bathroom thing, let's try the car. Like, you're trying to figure something out, which you don't even, I mean, it would be nice to just have to worry about your competition. (laughs) Of course, you know, I haven't to worry about weight, and I've done it both ways. I've done it where I didn't cut weight, and I've done it where I did cut weight. And I can say being able to not worry about what you're eating, you're still eating healthy, but not having to, okay, 
am I going to put on an ounce or two if I eat this steak or something like that? You know, it, it takes a lot of stress off of it. And you can go in there to your competition and you don't have to worry. All you have to do is just focus on competing. Not having the weight cut um, element is, is amazing. I loved it. And that's why, that's when I got down to my weight, I was like, okay, I'm staying here. I'm not going to have to cut weight and I'm going to be disciplined doing the meal prepping. Um, so when I do start to compete again, I don't have to worry about that. Hope we, we've got uh, an interesting uh, little background of you as a white belt. You know, you liked your, your, your knee cut pass flower sweep and, and your, your cross collar chokes. And that worked <laughs> really well for you. It, we have a lot of people who are white belts or maybe new blue belts and making that transition from white to blue. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you were like as a blue belt and kind of how you took maybe those techniques and changed them or maybe uh, abandoned them or even developed them more as you went on to blue. Yeah, when I became a blue belt, um, right after I won Worlds, I was promoted to blue. And so I started trying to open my game up more. I liked the close guards but I wanted to be able to play open guard, play spider guard, um, De La Hiva. So I was, I was wanting to open up more, but I'll tell you that it wasn't, it was probably about a year, almost a year worth of competing until I finally opened up my game because it is, it is one thing to do it in the gym, but it's another thing to do it in competition. And so, like I said, in, in the gym, I was training, you know, more spider guard, more De La Hiva, more sit up guard, um, which I loved, but um, in competitions, I kind of went back to my fundamentals, which was jump to close guard. And then if the girl was like, you know, being too crazy, I wouldn't feel confident to put her into, you know, spider guard or sit up guard. Um, it's a little bit later on. So it took a couple of top competitions of me just, you know, pulling guard and kind of sitting there for a second and opening up and closing back up and going to open guard, back to close guard. Um, but I, I started to open up more as a blue belt, um, my techniques changed, I would say, in the gym drastically. In competition, it took a little bit longer. Um, I did like the sit-up guard. I liked um, lapel chokes. So instead of doing my cross-grip chokes, they kind of transitioned into um, either the person's almost like a, a baseball choke using the other person's gi or the, um, the loop choke using my own gi. Um, I really like that one a lot, too, because nobody ever sees it coming. So I had the opposite a loop choke with my lapel or the same side loop choke with my lapel. Cool. It's, it's interesting to hear how it, it changed, but in some respects, uh, some things stayed the same or similar, and they were able to build on each other. Uh, you've also competed very well at Nogi. Can you tell us a little bit about the, maybe the differences in training for the Gi versus Nogi? I'll tell you, I don't like nogi. I don't like nogi competitions. They're, um, I like training in the gi a lot better. Um, I did, I did the nagas. I always competed in nogi, and I, you know, I always won. The the only nogi match that I lost was Canans as a blue belt, and that one I did not cut weight for, and I paid for it because the girls I went against were enormous, and they just sat on top of me. And so I do regret not cutting weight for that one. But um, the Nogi training, it's high-paced. Yeah, I think it requires more conditioning, more cardio. Um, I like it a little bit more because it's easier to get out of positions that you wouldn't normally be able to get out of when you're training in the heat. Um, 
But, you know, the Nogi, I, I did like competing in it. It's just like, as far as um, techniques-wise, I kind of stuck to the same thing, you know, closed guard, flower sweep. And then um, for the Nogi, you can't, you know, you can't do the cross-grip <laughs> apparently. So yeah. I would be either a Kimura or Americana, whichever one they would give me. Okay. So would you do the, the Nogi matches because it was at the same competition and you just signed up for both? Or why were you doing those? Yeah, that's what I would do. You know, you're going there for a gi, you might as well do Nogi. And we did have a couple of training sessions during the week, um, Nogi. And if we knew we were having a Nogi competition, we would, you know, add a couple more days for the Nogi. But really, I was only doing them, you know, just to see how my Nogi game was because we never, we don't really compete a lot of Nogi. So, you know, if we had a Naga competition or U.S. grappling, um, I would always, you know, just do it just pretty much just for fun. It wasn't really, you know, if I won, that was great because we don't really train it. <laughs> but it wasn't like it wasn't like what I was preparing for in the gi. Yeah, it, but also getting the the no gi experience, you know, getting the extra mat time, that extra uh, experience com- uh, competing is probably going to, in the long run, help you out uh, on the mat no matter what you're doing. It definitely will. As I said, you know, you just go to have fun, but, you know, anything, especially competing-wise, anything that you can improve on and bring back to the gym and say, hey, I need to work on this better or this better, that's always going to help you. And even if it's getting, you know, three or four extra matches in Nogi, I think that's awesome. And that's, you know, that's the reason why I did them too. It's just to have that extra, you know, competition time and to see, you know, how my Nogi game was compared to my Gi. Well, cool. Oh, hope I like to kind of switch gears a little bit here. You mentioned that you teach the kids and the teens classes. Could you maybe yeah. just describe how those are set up differently than the adults class? The kids and teens classes, we run pretty much like the adult classes. We're not going to have, you know, some of the higher level techniques for the kids, but we teach the kids pretty much just like the adults. Um, they learn, you know, the fundamentals, clothes guard, flower sweep, waiter sweep, um, you know, leg drag passes, knee flat passes, you know, all the submission as well. I think the kids are sometimes a little bit easier to teach than the adults because they, <laughs> they don't have that, that, um, that mentality yet to, to, um, to question anything. So you have the adults who think too much about the techniques, whereas the kids, they will just do it because they're being told to do it. Um, so the kids are a little bit easier to teach than the adults sometimes, but, um, but basically the techniques are the same. Do you have any, any tips or advice for keeping the kids, uh, they're keeping their attention? What we do is we have jujitsu related activities in between, um, when we first started. Now the kids are, they know the program, they know what they're supposed to be doing. So even the five and six year olds, they don't need the games anymore. So when we first started, we would have, you know, the younger kids separated from the older kids and they would do their warm ups, which is like shrimping, bear crawls, all the stuff that you need to strengthen your jujitsu game. And then they would go straight to techniques. So we would be we'd be practicing, you know, like the knee side pass, we'd be practicing the leg drive pass. Um, so we do maybe you know, 10, rep, 10 reps of that with the kids. And then we go and do crab tag, which is, you know, you're in the crab walk position and you have to tag, you know, the other players with your feet. So you're still working on those jujitsu strengths that you need um, and then bring them back 
so you, you, with the kids, you really have to um, functionate uh, the games for jujitsu in between the training. And then they kind of grow out of it. So once they start getting into the program, they've been there for a little while, they don't rely on those games, whereas they did before. So now the kids that we have, they are like, okay, I want to drill. I need to practice this. So they kind of get out of that mentality, which we still play games with them every once in a while, but they're always jujitsu related. So we're not playing, you know, dodgeball in the middle of the jujitsu room <laughs> or anything like that. Um, it's always jujitsu related and always, you know, being positive, encouraging the kids um, all the time so they don't feel that, you know, you're just criticizing them on every little detail because they are going to get it wrong. They do need help. And, you know, especially the kids that are, are competing. And you might have a little bit more tendency to critique because you want them to do so well. Yeah, it's, it sounds like at at first the the group of kids kind of needed some activities, those games to play. But now the, the the team is not really needing that. And even with a new kid coming in, they're seeing looking at their teammates and saying, "Okay, now we do this, and we I'm pay, everyone's paying attention. I better pay attention." And so it's more like the team doesn't need to play those games versus at the beginning when, when everyone kind of needed to change it up a little bit. Would you agree to that? I do agree completely. So, you know, all the kids we teach, you know, lead by example. So, you know, the kids that are coming up in the program when we have a new kid, it's easy for them, you know, to fall in line with all the other kids because they do set such a good example. That helps out a, a, a ton, I bet. Um, hope you train a lot and, and you've got uh, like a great system of, of off the mat uh, time and, and meal prep and training and, and you get in the, into the, the classroom several times or a couple times a day. Uh, but not everybody can do that. What advice do you have for somebody who's just able to train maybe once to three times a week? If you're only able to train that much, I think that's great. Um, like I said before, not everybody is going to be able to train or be in the gym as much as you know other people. And that's fine. You don't have to. Um, I think it just comes down to, you know, being honest with yourself and saying, okay, what do I want to achieve? And if I'm going to come in there and I can only come one to three times a week, what can I do to make my training session the most productive? So that for me would be going in there, you know, not goofing off, listening to my instructor, actually doing what my instructor is telling me to do you know, doing all the techniques, um, maybe even staying after and asking if you have questions. I always encourage you know, everyone to ask questions because um, that's how you're going to learn. And then apply what you're drilling and what you're learning in the rolling session. So if you're just coming there and you're just, you're just interested in getting to the rolling session, you're not really focused on the technique, you're not going to improve and you're just really wasting your time. So you need to apply, even if you don't like the moves like we talked before, um, finding techniques that work for you and that you enjoy and that you can advance in. Um, Use those techniques that you're learning um, in the rolling session so you can improve. Always ask questions and then just use your time, the time that you have, even if it is once a week. You can still learn a lot in that, you know, one to two hour session um, if if that's what you you can make. Yeah, and I always encourage people to do that 
try to try the moves you learned today. For me, my memory is not the best. So you know, if I learn two or three moves today, I'll probably forget them by next week. But if I could actually do a couple of those techniques or just one of them on a live opponent, I am a lot more likely to remember that technique. And then even if I don't use it in my game, I'll, I'll recognize it's going to happen to me sometime uh, a little bit ahead of time versus a total, oh, I'd never seen that technique before because I forgot it. Well, I'm less likely to forget. <laughs> so that yeah. that's that's great. And I you also mentioned uh, ask questions. That's something that a lot of people don't do. They, we come in and we train and we and we roll and we we struggle. And but really, asking questions about your specific game is something that uh, is one great way to take advantage of such a knowledgeable uh, instructor that you could have. And versus going online and just looking at different techniques, say I have a problem with this happening in my game. You can't do that really anywhere online. And your instructor is usually more than capable of helping you out with that. And a lot of times we just don't ask the questions that would help us out. That is true. And if you're going online, which I do not recommend, because you're not getting the full technique when you go online and look up, you know, these moves, um, you're not getting the fundamentals of that, of that specific technique. And you're also missing a lot because these, I mean, I've watched instructional DVDs and I'm not going to say any names, but I mean, they leave out, so many little details that make a difference for the move. Um, And then it goes even further than that. Okay, this person's extremely flexible. They're able to pull this technique off. There's no way I'd be able to do that. Um, So always ask questions. And if it should be, now now I'm not saying to go in there and ask a question (laughs) that's completely unrelated to what what you just learned. Ask questions about the techniques that you have been learning and then what you learned, you know, that evening, for example. And if you're, if you're asking those type of questions, then your instructor is going to be able to help you because if they're teaching that, that technique, then they know all the little details around it. So that's the person that you should be you know, asking, not, not going online to YouTube at all. Yeah, and I always appreciate it when somebody comes up and they say, hey, I've been trying this this thing that we worked on three weeks ago, and it's coming okay, but I have this problem. Well, in my head, I'm excited. They've been doing this for three weeks. They're actually putting time and effort into it, and they just mm-hmm. have a little glitch. I'm happy. That's that's a great opportunity to fix that little problem that they have and uh, and help them with that. Yes, and then you see the improvement because they have been, tra- they have been working on that, that technique for that long. And then you are going to run into this problem um, because, you know, your training partners are getting better. You're getting better. So every time, you know, your training partner stops you with a counter, then you go and ask another question. And so you get the reaction to that counter. So then that makes your training partner go to the instructor and say, okay, well, hey, they did this reaction. What do I do now? So it's always this, this, um, this, this system where everyone's advancing, you know, at the same rate. Yeah, and hopefully, uh, if you do decide to go compete, you won't run into nearly as many counts because they don't know what you're trying to do when you're doing it, and they and your training partners, you've helped train them to train you uh, to really sharpen your game. Yes. Uh, Hope, you've got, I know you have a couple of sponsors. Could you tell us a little bit about those? Yes, I have. Um, our, our, my local sponsor here is Max Muscle. And Artie Quaranta was working with me for a long time, and he just passed it off to um, to a new owner. But he still does, you know, all the work there. He's worked with me for the six, almost seven years that I've been competing and training. 
And then um, Helen Shelby out in Las Vegas, Nevada, is the owner of Shiruto Sports Bras, and she is also my sponsor. Do you have any uh, yeah. websites or contact information that we can go look at those at? Um, Max Muscle ILM is the local um, sports nutritionist place here, that, and they specialize only in sports nutrition. So, um, like I said, already worked with me for a long time. They work with, you know, specific athletes, top-level athletes. You know, they're not just your typical, you know, GNC or Walmart-type brand. And they actually, you know, work with these high-level athletes, and they know how you're training. They take the time to get to know you. And um, I absolutely love Max Muscle. They're great. They have great products. And they've worked with me for a long time. Um, Helen is out of Las Vegas. I know her um, her Instagram is straight here, but I'm not sure about a website for her yet. Um, but I could probably give that to you okay. when, I, when I find that out. Okay, that, that would be cool. I hope I've had a great time getting to know you and, and learn from you, and it, it was an interesting conversation. Uh, how could somebody uh, get a hold of you or even train with you? I am located in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I am you know, always at the gym if you want to stop by. Um, we always welcome you know, outside students, any affiliations, um, all levels to come and train with us here in Wilmington. Um, we have our contact page on our website, which is alliancebjjnc.com. And you can always, you know, contact us on the contact page and say you're coming over and you're always welcome. All right. Well, thank you for that. And uh, it's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I would like to thank Hope, who's got a key, one more time uh, for jumping on here with us, sharing some of her story, giving us advice. It, I got really interested in listening to her uh, white belt story, you know, winning worlds. And what does that mean to be a white belt world champion? Well, it really means that she had an accelerated learning curve that was beyond her peers. I mean, that's as, as simple as that is. She wasn't the best grappler in the world. She was the best at it in the group of people who are pretty new at it. And that's something to look at. What did she do? What was her game plan? Her game plan was pretty simple. You know, she... Yeah, she had a, a contingency plan, so she had ways to get back into her game plan if she got out of it. And it was just nice of her to share that story with us. And, and uh, I think it would be interesting to hear other people with similar uh, early successes like that and see what, they, what they've what they come up with. So we'll be hopefully bringing you something like that in the future. But, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm very interested in, in Hope's story, and I'm glad she gave us the time. And uh, it, uh, it, was, it was good to hear from her. Yep, we really appreciate it, and thank you so much, Hope. Gary, there are a number of easy ways to get in touch with the BJJ Brick podcast crew. Uh, probably the easiest way is Facebook. Uh, go like our page and, and check us out there. And uh, if you have a question or want to message there, that's great. It, or you could always send us a message at our email, bjjbrick at gmail.com. Also have a YouTube channel. That's going pretty good. We're getting some videos up there. And just basically wherever your social media is we'll try to be there <laughs> gary there's a few that we don't do but we uh we'll leave those alone yeah hey and i know we had one last week and a couple other times but uh we're requesting stories for a segment we call matt tales oh and gary this is just uh you can just send us a little uh, story at uh bjjbrick at gmail.com or put it on our uh a Facebook page, BJJ Brick. But it's just a, a crazy story about some awkward or strange event 
that happened in your jujitsu career. It doesn't have to be to you. It could have been to a teammate. Um, we've had, uh, uh, you know, one where a guy, a newcomer was getting ready to go to his first seminar ever. And, and, uh, he talked to his boss and his boss was going to let him off a little bit early. He went to the bathroom to change, to get ready to go to the seminar and got locked in the bathroom for a couple hours. Couldn't it, the lock fell off and everything. And he ended up missing the seminar. Uh, we had another one where a, a guy first time into his into a gym uh, starts rolling with a very attractive female grappler and ends up uh, having a messy time uh, had some bowel issues and um, so we've had some some crazy ones and if you have anything like that or know anything like that definitely uh, send us a message uh, let us know about it and uh, we can put it on the show. I, I trust that everybody last week that had not seen the Back to School movie has seen it by now, and now we can incorporate the Triple Lindy into our uh, grappling termolo- terminology, Gary. Hey, and, and speaking of this, what even might work for this, and I know it's probably happened before, you guys might have been into it, even dojo storms. Some guy comes into your oh, that'd be cool. dojo, into your school, and uh, it goes backwards. That would definitely be a good mat tail. There we go. Lots of options yeah. for the for the matches, yeah. and it, it's just kind of fun to get one. Come into the email. It's like, what in the world happened over here? You know, like yeah. <laughs> you're just reading it, and just start laughing yeah. the whole time you're reading it, and you're like, unbelievable. Yep, and we'll we'll put it together and make put some music to it, and we'll share it with everybody. So, and we've we've kept them anonymous, which has been nice. So you could share kind of a little more embarrassing thing, but yeah, you don't get any credit for it. It's just out there for you to enjoy yeah. with everybody else. Yeah, and we'll definitely keep it anonymous. Like I know the the guy who had the messy uh, time with the female grappler, he actually put it at the end. He's like, hey, please don't <laughs> um, use my name because, uh, you know, I know some people that listen to the show. and and But, hey, we're not going to use your name anyhow, so don't ever worry about that. It's all uh, anonymous. Absolutely. Speaking of another thing you don't get credit for, our uh, most interesting grappler segment is uh, we're looking at, we're going to be recording some more of these uh, get some fresh ones out there for everybody and if you want to uh, send some ideas to us about the world's most interesting grappler send them to bjjbrick at gmail.com I'm collecting these into a big pile we'll get them all recorded and, and engineered and ready for the audio listening of the audience but uh, yet again I'm like we're going to give everybody credit we're just going to put them in a big pile and, and read them off and you get the joy of hearing your uh, most interesting grappler fact be aired but that's about it so uh, thank yep. you for those who have contributed so far we've gotten several in and, uh, yeah, I was laughing. Yeah, I was laughing reading them the other day. Somebody was saying uh, a guy won a high level tournament without his uh, gi being all patched. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> and uh, a guy won shrimp so hard he opened a red lobster. So uh, our our listeners have been sending in some pretty good ones. Yep, They're, they are good to us, Gary, and we do appreciate them uh, fully. And uh, speaking of things that are good to us, Gary's audiobook has always been good to us. People have, uh, I've gotten countless, uh, as in uncountable, uh, emails. Uncountable means zero. Yeah, that's zero emails about how your audiobooks have changed lives, Gary, and really helped people out. Uh, if, if you're new to the show, this is the time of the show where we will uh, throw Gary. Uh, under the bus. Under the bus. No, Gary, I'm Hunt not gonna. I'm over, not gonna back over. Back <laughs> over me again. You know, throw me under the bus. Drag me behind the bus. Gary, I'm not gonna ever stab you in the back, but I will drive that bus right over you. <laughs> you will. You have. <laughs> so I, I, I always like to surprise Gary with an audiobook title, 
and watch him fill out the details of what this audiobook will be. He has no idea what this is going to be. And Gary, your audiobook this week is called Leverage. How I have leveraged my awkwardness to get submissions. And I don't know what kind of awkwardness you're thinking about, but Gary, we all have awkward things that go to us. And, uh, and I don't know how any of my awkwardness could ever give me a submission. They just kind of just lead me down the wrong path oftentimes. But uh, I'm interested to know how your awkwardness has actually taps people out. Well, you know the thing, this works great for me. Um, one look at me, and uh, you'll know I'm definitely awkward. Um, <laughs> weird, strange, uh, unnormal, I guess you could say. And I do use that to my advantage. You know, a lot of times I'll... I'll go up to my first role, somebody I've never rolled with before, and, uh, you know, introduce myself. And right off the bat, they can tell how awkward and, you know, hey, this guy's a little strange. I better, uh, uh, you know, take it easy on this guy. And that's what we're talking about in Chapter 1, you know, how to use your awkwardness. And, just, and then, you know, you've heard me say this numerous times before, but I'm going to use my awkwardness, get the guy at ease, you know, we're going to slap hands, get ready to roll. The person is at ease. He's going to take care of me because I'm the awkward, strange guy. And then I'm going to come at him like a wounded cougar. You've heard me say that numerous times. And what it does is it leads to an easy win for me. I'm going to get you sleeping, get you feel sorry for me. Hey, this guy's strange. And then I'm just going to jump out of the box with everything I got. So um, it's just a way to... Uh, and, and we're going to talk about how to use that not only on the mat... But in real life, you know, I, I can go to a restaurant and get people to buy me, you know, lunch. I can go walking and stand on the corner waiting for the uh, the light to change, and people hand me money. It happens all the time. That's more because of your clothing choice, Gary, I think, than anything else. Oh, okay. But, I mean, it works great. Like, we're going to, you know, chapter one is going to be on the mat. You know, chapter two is going to be, you know, how to get free food. Chapter three is going to be how to just stand at the corner and make enough money to buy a hundred thousand dollar house, and um, you know, and so it, it's not going to just help you on the mat. It's going to help you off the mat, and it's also going to, you know, we're going to have a chapter on, uh, you know, how to use it to increase your social life, and um, you know, you'll get a lot of the women feeling sorry for you, and uh, next thing you know, they'll start hanging out with you. There you go, uh, yeah. hey man. A sweet pity. Where would my love life be without some pity, man? Uh, that was, that's my A game back in the day. Yep. I never had an A game. <laughs> <laughs> the sympathy date. There yeah. we go. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, what it's all about. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of these movies. Um, darn, I can't think of the name of the movie, but with Patrick Dempsey where he's a nerdy high school guy and he got the uh, all the, the popular girl to like him. Playing Dynamite. And what was that? It was it Napoleon Dynamite, Gary? No, no. That's a great movie. I actually watched it last night. Um, but the thing is, I mean, you can learn some of the tricks of the trade. Like, once these women friend you, what you do is you just start taking pictures, selfies with them. Post them on your Facebook page. Post them on your Twitter or your Instagram. Pretty soon, you're the most popular guy in school, even though you're awkward, strange, and weird. So, um... Uh, we're going to learn a lot that's going to help you uh, in your in your life, um, on and off the mat. Yeah. You know what's kind of funny? We're talking about awkwardness or whatever. Being awkward, uh, junior high, high school, is, is like a uh, it's a negative thing, typically speaking. But as adults, older, yeah, yeah, it's like I like people who are awkward. They're more interesting to be around. I, I like yeah. uh, the quirky people and people who are like characters. And like, this guy could be on a TV show. He's so weird. 
So, uh, Gary, maybe they'll start up a TV show with you. Maybe just be a little more awkward. Yeah, you know, that's the one thing I've noticed about jiu-jitsu. There's a lot of awkward people in jiu-jitsu. And I think maybe that's why I fit in so well. And, um, you know, I, it's a good group of guys, but um, a good group of awkward people. There we go. Gary, I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, when is the most awkward time for it to come out? Valentine's Day? Well, you know, this thing's never going to come out, so don't even worry about it. <laughs> well, this is awkward. Uh, shut me awkward. down like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured you'd be used to that, Mr. No A Game. There we go. I don't need the A Game anymore. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, there, that's uh, uh, I'm looking forward to your progress in this book. Although it will never come out, your awkward struggle is always motivating to me as you struggle through your book. Well, like you said, it's an awkward struggle. You know, it's a struggle. If it was easy, it wouldn't be fun, and it wouldn't be awkward. So let's be awkward. Hey, you want to do something awkward? Tell a friend about the Beach Jibber podcast and tell them why you like it. You might share with them uh, one of the Matt tells. You might tell them who was uh, being interviewed this week or any other week that you think your friend is going to be interested in. Um, have that awkward conversation of inviting them to the show and checking it out. And uh, you might have just made a new, uh, better friend or a, a listener of the show that they that they can now enjoy with you and, and learn just with all of us together. So uh, we appreciate it when you tell a, a training partner, a friend, you have that awkward conversation, tell them about the podcast. We appreciate yep. that. We appreciate it. Hashtag awkward. Um, hey, we're in the middle of the United States. Wichita, Kansas is where we're at. So if you happen to be traveling through um, to the uh, taking a vacation to sunny, hot, and dry Wichita, definitely uh, let us know. Uh, send us a line, bjjbrick at gmail.com. Hit us up on our Facebook page, and we'd love to uh, get some awkward timing on the map. Not just awkward time, but sweaty time. Stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, if you think about a lever, <laughs> it, 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 it's a long stick, basically, that you that you grab and you'll turn something uh either at the base or beyond the base, whether if it's um, like a lever attached to something, you'd probably rotate it right. I don't Okay, I'm getting a little bit too... Maybe try that, Gary, because that was terrible. If you think about a lever, it is something that helps you get leverage. And if... Uh, damn it, Gary, I'm, I'm tanking. <laughs> uh, let me read a little bit here. Okay. Let me try this the third time, and if it fails... Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. i got to get up and do some jumping jacks.